0: As a local church, we consistently stress that knowledge and actions are inseparable in the Christian life. We are, on the one hand, a fellowship of learning. We make no apology for that. We covenant together, indeed, to know God's Word. To persistently read the Scriptures, to study them, to come to understand them in a fuller light. We feed our minds on the truth and we seek to grow in our knowledge of who God is. On the other hand, we stress the truth that what we learn is to transform our lives. It's intended to be life transforming. And so we covenant as members to live holy and godly lives. We realize our knowledge of the Scripture should be wed to the fruit of the Spirit, and to a growing Christ-likeness in our lives. We must know the truth, and we must live it. While knowledge and action are inseparable, and must be equally stressed, we would also say this, and that is that knowledge, generally speaking, precedes action. Knowledge is the inspiration or the motivation for the actions of our life, for the deeds, the ethic of the Christian faith. It is what we know to be true, and thus what we learn to value and to love and to appreciate is beautiful and right. It's that that fuels our actions. And I would argue that fundamental to that knowledge is who you believe yourself to be. Who you believe yourself to be who are you? What do you believe about yourself? How would you articulate your fundamental sense of identity? Now we live in a psychologized world, and so many would hear those questions and say, I'm ready. Here we go. I understand how this works. Yes, yes, we we need to have confidence in ourselves. We need to believe in ourselves. We need to think highly of ourselves. And then we are sure to prosper. So feed us the truth that we may think rightly of ourselves. That's not at all what I mean. That's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, much of the ministry of this church is oriented to convincing people that their fundamental sense of identity is all wrong. It's just off track. Much of the ministry of this church is oriented to convincing people who feel pretty good about themselves that they are indeed enslaved to sin, that they are brainwashed by idols, and that they are alienated from God. And it's not until they see themselves for who they really are that they will respond to the salvation that God provides in Scripture. But much of the ministry of this church to those who have repented of sin and have turned from idols to serve the living and true God is to rightly perceive who we are as born-again members of Christ's body. As a follower of Christ, your sense of identity, who you perceive yourself to be, is vital to how you live. Not understood in a psychologized way, but in a truly biblical sense, it is vital that we know who we are. And we'll be laboring with unbelievers until they come to faith to say, this is who you are in your sin. You're in a bondage you don't perhaps sense. You don't see yourself rightly. And then to labor... Once a person comes to that faith to say, this is who you are in Christ. This is your true identity in Him. And one more thing. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly assaulting your sense of identity. They're seeking to get you to adjust it, to change it just a bit, to adapt What this world is teaching and what its values and what it sees as beautiful are truly to be in our lives and in our minds. So there's that assault two ways. What we do not perceive about who we are in Christ, along with a world that is seeking to get us to think differently, about who we truly are. So just as Christ's people seek to convince the lost that they are in bondage to sin and must seek transformational change, people in the world seek to pollute our sense of identity in Christ. Because they cannot see it, they don't understand it, they seek to continually to get us to adjust it. To add to it. To subtract from it. To see it differently. To bring in the ideas of those who perceive themselves to be only who they are in their own standing, apart from Christ. It is this assault on our identity that brings us back to the second chapter of Colossians this morning. I encourage you to turn there or bring yourself to that text. Colossians chapter 2, in chapter, or verse 4 rather, of Colossians chapter 2, we noted last week that Paul was concerned. He said, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He expresses his concern about the deluding power of plausible arguments that would attack the faith of the Colossian believers. This was not an attack that said, Jesus is nobody, he didn't really live, or he's, he's worthless. It's not that kind of attack. It's the kind of attack that is saying Yes, we acknowledge Jesus, we acknowledge His salvation, but there's a certain way you should perceive yourself in walking with God and how to get closer to God, and Jesus is great, we're glad that you've embraced Him, but here's what you really need to see. We'll get into that further, perhaps next week or in in a couple of weeks, but In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, I'd like to just give a a brief overview here so we know what we're tracking through. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 hits the pivotal point of the book. Really, in some ways, the thesis statement is perhaps here, verse 6, walk in Him. Walk in Him. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. These two verses, 6 and 7, everything to this point has served to set up this expression of Paul's chief concern with respect to the Colossians. As we move then to verse 8, you'll see an imperative. See to it that no one takes you captive. In verses 8 through 23, through to the end of the chapter, he is going to look at this matter negatively. You'll see the imperatival warnings that are negative. That is warning what to watch for, what not to do. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Notice verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And again in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. So verses 8 through 23 are looking at here's what you should not do. Here's what you must avoid. Here's, as you think of your identity in Christ, here's the warning that I'm issuing. And then as he comes to chapter 3, verse 1 and following, he looks at it on the positive side of here is how I want you to think and continue to think. We'll get to that here in verses 6 and 7. But that idea of walking in him will really be unpacked in chapter 3 and following. So, Do this, we're going to talk negatively here for a couple of weeks as we look at at chapter 2, and then positively at chapter 3. So with that in view, we start again with this call in verse 6. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So walk in Him. What does that mean to you? To walk in Christ, continue to live your life in Christ. Continue to live every day with a conscious awareness that your very being is bound up with and wholly identified with Jesus. Let me tell you something, there's nobody here that fully gets that. Nobody that's completely putting that into practice and fully even understanding it. I think in the non-biblical term there's a bit of mystery here. And what it means to be in Christ. And we'll ever be looking to that wonderful and yet sometimes confusing idea. Keep working, keep learning, and keep knowing. But what he is saying here to us is we must continue to live our lives in Christ. Who am I? I'm one with Christ. Or more fully, as it states here, one with Christ Jesus the Lord. I think each word there is significant. With Christ Jesus the Lord, verse 6. Christ, the promised Messiah who would crush Satan's head and end sin's curse. We walk in Jesus, the Savior who rescues His people from their bondage to sin. And we walk in Him as the Lord, as the Master, the Sovereign Ruler of the universe. Now, as you have received this Lord, this Christ, this Jesus, as you've received Him, so walk in Him. Now, Let's think of the word receive. What does that mean? As you have received him. There are people who take that verse and say, here's how we should think of it. I need to go back to my conversion, and I, think, and I need to think about myself and how I accepted Christ by faith, and then that's how I need to continue to live. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a wrong idea as such, but that's not the point here. It doesn't mean keep living the same way you did when you profess faith in Christ. But rather, receive here points to the content of the truth about Jesus received by the Colossians in the proclamation of the Gospel. This fits the context much better. How did they receive Christ? There was content there. There was truth there. Coming back to the beginning of this sermon, there was knowledge there that they're going to act on as they live. So how did they receive Christ? Well, what do we know to this point in the book? What has he been saying as he's laid out his message to the Colossians? Well, who have they received? Christ is the eternal, the preexistent creator of the universe. He is preeminent over all. That's how they've received Him. He is the sphere in which the universe exists. The architect of every atom in the cosmos. He is the final destiny and glory of the time, space, mass continuum. That's the Christ that they've received. That's how they received Him. That's the message. He is the cohesive power that holds together every atom in the universe. That's how they received Christ, as the cosmic head of the universe. How they received him. He is the supreme head over the church having conquered in his flesh in, by his death, death itself. Death is crushed to death. We've sung here today. That's Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in him bodily and he laid down that body to secure the reconciliation of sinners to God. Indeed of the universe itself. That's how you receive Christ as the head of the new creation. By dying in our behalf, He removed our alienation from God. He cleansed our hostile minds of rebellion, and He secured for us peace with God. Choosing us as His own from eternity past, He labors to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in His presence for all eternity as we stand justified, sanctified, and glorified before our Savior, complete in Him. That's how you received Christ. You did not receive Him as just a good teacher and a kindly man. And somebody you want to imitate, a good example to walk before you. That's not how we received him. We received him as this cosmic creator and sustainer and savior of his church. We've received him as the one in whom is stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is Christ, a sovereign savior. And it is this Christ in whom we live. Our identity is rooted in this one. He becomes our identity. We become a new creation in Him. Such knowledge of Christ and our sense of identity in Him is vital to our daily walk as Christians. What is the sin struggle with which you're dealing? What is the trial with which you're dealing today? There is all kinds of psychologized counsel that can come from this world to help you to trust yourself. To help you to think about things in a different way so that you can cope. We need to continue to come back to knowing who Christ is. That's what Paul is saying. Walk in Him. Walk in Him. Know who He is. Act on that basis. Know who you are in Him and live in Christ. Now he describes that life with four participles describing this walk here in verse 7. Verse 7 is walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. Just as you were taught abounding in In thanksgiving so we get the, the slide will perhaps help here but we have what are three passive participles the first giving the sense having been permanently rooted in him this is what has happened that is a completed action you this this has taken place you have been rooted in him permanently Paul uses a horticultural term here to picture our lives as a tree that God has planted in the soil of Christ You have been rooted there by God. All of these passives indicating that this is the action of God. Secondly, continuing to be built up in Him. This is how we might translate the Greek phrase. It misses us a bit here in the English. Rooted seems like very similar to built up in Him. And of course the ideas are similar, but they are that one is what has taken place, the other is what is a continuing process in your life, to be built up in Him. God initiates this continuing work. So Paul here uses an architectural term to speak of our ongoing need to be edified in the faith, and then thirdly, continuing to be established in the faith. Here he uses... A legal term. It was used of a guarantee in business or a contract that was being disputed. But here it speaks of being made firm or solid or assured, continuing to be guaranteed in our faith. And then as verse 7 unfolds, he says, Just as you were taught, it's difficult to know if that goes before with what comes before or what comes after, But just as you were taught, there was instruction along these lines, and then an active participle, abounding in thanksgiving, abounding in thanksgiving. So here's walking in Christ, being united to Him, and living out my identity in Christ means being recognizing I have been permanently rooted in Him, I continue to build myself up in Him, He builds me up in Him, and he continues, we continue to be established in the faith, and then actively abounding in thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. There's a, there's a, there's a tiny little sermon coming here, All right, so it's going to conclude in less than a minute. But thanksgiving is a guard stationed at our heart's door that fights off spiritual deception. It's a guard at our heart's door that fights off spiritual deception. When I do not actively nurture a thankful heart and see how God is to be praised and thanked, I send the guard home and I leave the door of my heart open to deception. Now, back to the main sermon. Paul has stated here then the thesis, walk in Him, your self-identity rooted in Christ, continuing to be built up in Him, continuing to be established in Him, actively giving thanks for this relationship. Now at verse 9, he says, or I'm sorry, at verse 8, He focuses upon the need to resist appeals to compromise this walk in Christ. So here's again turning to the negative now. There will be forces out there that point you in a different direction or seek to harm your walk with Christ by adding to it. And So he's going to labor now with this negative command first in verse 8. Here's the warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So you are to be warned. You are to be watchful. The Spirit is saying this to our church, to your heart right now. We are to be watchful that no one takes us captive. No one captures us. Kidnaps us. To begin to follow philosophies that, is, that are empty and deceitful. This is a live possibility because the world is filled with people who would love to ensnare us and to drag us away from a biblical sense of identity in Christ. I don't think they get up every morning actively thinking about that, most of them. But that's precisely where they are. The magnetism of sin that seeks to always draw others around it and draw them in. And participate with them. Now how would this happen? How would they do this? By peddling ideas that subtly conflict with sound doctrine. To take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Indicates something of a subtlety. A stealth attack of ideas that are actually contradicting your knowledge of your your identity in Christ as a follower of Him. This teaching is according to human tradition. Such thinking is not found in the Word of God, but in what people want to believe and what they want to pass down from generation to generation. And in that, there is indeed a warning for every one of us. There are ideas that we've received from our parents from our extended families, from schools and institutions and neighborhoods and people that we appreciate and friends. And all of this human tradition many times sets us in a place of a stable, loving home where we are taught to be decent people and to work hard, to trust ourselves, to do good, and and if we do, good will come back to us. What you sow... You will reap after all. And all of what this human tradition does is settle us into a self-trust. Not rooted in Christ as Savior, but rooted in our identity of a, as a family. Our identity in our upbringing. Our identity as Twinsidians, if that's a word. Here we are. In our happy place, learning how to live life, and what we may be imbibing is human tradition that is not according to Christ. I'm going to largely skip the phrase according to the elemental spirits of the world. This is kind of ironic always. It seems like what I read about most, I say less about, but that's because there's massive conflict as to what that phrase means. There's three basic ideas, we'll not go into them there, but you do see a marginal note, which is uh, principles, elementary principles, it may be elementary spirits, and there's actually a third option that many would argue pretty uh, carefully for, but the point is, and if we can just back away and just say the simple point, is teaching rooted in the world, not rooted in Christ? Whether it's the spirit world, or whether it's principles of this world, or whether it's the elementary rudiments of this world, whatever the case, there's the key, verse 8, not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. Knowledge, action, and self-identity that's not rooted in Christ. It's rooted elsewhere. It's rooted in what I've grown up to learn, and who I see myself to be as I depend upon myself as a good person. Or whatever we would fill in. It's not according to Christ. It's not rooted in Him. So Paul speaks against ways of seeing reality and against beliefs about right and wrong that are rooted in ideas that come from people's minds and do not see Christ as Savior. They certainly do not see Him as the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. You say, is it really that big of a deal? Or is this just what Christians have to do to maintain their spot in this world? Is it really that big of a deal? Do we really need to make this much of Christ? What does it matter? Why Christ alone? At verse 9 and through verse 15, he goes to the rationale. Here's the warning Now here's why you should heed this warning. It's really, really important. Because, verse 9, in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You want to try to dilute that? You want to try to mess with that formula? Here's who He is. Jesus is not partially God. Jesus is not other than God. Jesus does not merely point us as the way-shower, as some put it. The whole fullness of deity, all that God is and can be, resides in Jesus. The whole fullness of deity means, as Mule puts it so well, the whole glorious total of what God is, the supreme nature in its infinite entirety, resides in Christ. And it does so in bodily form. Yeah, we don't get it. We can't work it out. It really is hard for our minds to grasp how that is conceivable. But this one took on flesh at a certain point in human history. And in this man, the glorious total of what God is, the supreme nature in its infinite entirety, rests in him. He is everything that God is, for he is divine. Any way of thinking or living that is not wholly rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ is damningly inferior. It's damningly inferior. It's inferior, but in a way that draws us to judgment because this is who He is. In Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's why it's a big deal. And on your part, verse 10, now he lays out our union with this one, with Christ. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You've been filled in him. This is not saying the deity of Christ is transferred to us and that we are now divine, that we are now God. But Christ has permanently provided an all-sufficient spiritual supply for His people such that we lack nothing. We are filled in Him. We're completed in Him. We're rooted in Him. There's nothing better to be rooted in. There's nothing greater in all this world in which to be rooted. His divine power grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of Him, Peter put it. The head of all rule and authority. Every antagonistic philosophy, hostile army, ruler, or evil force in this universe is under the absolute sovereign reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have been united with Him. Verse 11 In fact, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You're united to this one, and in him you have received a circumcision made without hands. Now obviously Paul is using circumcision figuratively here to refer to our new identity in Christ, and I think at conversion, I think is what is in view here. Circumcision was obviously a literal ritual that identified Jewish infants with God's people. But even the Old Covenant prophets used the term figuratively at times to speak of an Israelite circumcised heart. Identifying a truly regenerate believer was one who was circumcised in heart. How does Paul use the term here? It's asked very simply, literally, or figuratively. It is a figurative reference to trusting Christ as Savior with the result that the body of sin is put off. So here's what happened when you trusted Christ as Savior. Are you born again? Who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you know that you have identified with Christ? Here's what happened to you. Here's what happened to me in that moment. Your body of flesh, or Romans 6, 6, your old man, who you were, was shed off and you became a new creature in Christ. Your old identity died with Jesus. We're not talking about just following a teacher here. Starting and ending there with following a teacher. Certainly, we follow Christ, but that, that that's not that's not it. You get down to the heart of it: who Jesus is is the death of who you were. You died in Him. You put off the old person. I was a butterfly. We may feel like we're still a caterpillar at first, but God's truth reminds us again and again that the power of sin has been broken, and we are new creatures in Christ. Take in this truth. Remember this truth. We must act on it. We are new creatures in Christ. Verse 12, connecting with that circumcision that's been discussed, he says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. A a brief sideline here. This is probably one of the crucial passages that is used by those who baptize infants to defend and support that particular position they say the connection between verse 11 and 12 is very clear what's he talking about in verse 11 circumcision and you you see the dependent clause there in verse 12 having been buried with him in baptism so baptism is clearly replacing circumcision the argument goes so under the old covenant infants were identified with the people of god through circumcision and now by baptism Infants are identified with the new covenant people of God. The problem is that baptism is linked here with a circumcision, follow it verse 11, not made with hands. Not made with hands. That's what baptism is linked to. So the circumcision of Christ in verse 11 is a circumcision made without hands, a figurative use of the word. And the baptism in verse 12 is directly linked to this circumcision of Christ, and thus to a circumcision performed without hands. So if Paul means to link baptism to literal circumcision, why call it without hands? Circumcision does not work all that well when you don't use hands. It's ridiculous. It's not the connection here, and you can look at it and understand it quite clearly. So it's a figurative sense in verse 11 which links to the literal baptism in verse 12 to which it speaks. We are given new hearts, verse 11, as we trust Christ as Savior and identify with Him in the waters of baptism. I think the whole conversion, initiation complex here being real baptism but being part of our salvation. Not in earning it, but as part of the whole package of how one comes to know Christ. We receive a circumcision made without hands, we're identified with Christ, and we follow Him in the waters of baptism. We're Christians. Continuing, he says, in you, verse 13, who were dead. Here's our identity again. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God, however, made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You're not know, going to read better words today. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? I mean, just think of that statement, verse 13. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The picture that's being drawn out here by Paul is a long list recording every sin that we commit. There's a lie, put it on the list. There's deceit, put it on the list. Those words, slander, add it to the list. There's greed, there's jealousy. There's gluttony. There's failure to love God. There's a failure to love others. There is deeply rooted selfishness. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. Day after day. Year after year. That's the list. Whatever it is specifically, this list in his mind... We see, verse 14, that He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is debatable exactly what He means by the record of debt, but it's not very difficult to know generally, is it? There is this condemnation. We sang this morning, no condemnation. I dread no condemnation. But here is this record of debt without getting into it too far that we stood guilty as sinners before God deserving his judgment. And the image may be, in Paul's mind, to the ancient practice of posting a notice with the pending judgment outside the cell of a criminal. Here's the name, here's the crime, here's the penalty. So many days in prison, execution pending, something along those lines. Not been able to find this, but as memory serves, I heard once upon a time Sinclair Ferguson talking about a practice in Scotland, very similar to this. The notice was on the side of the cell, the crime that was committed, the judgment that was to come, and in cases of capital punishment, the person would be taken out of the cell and killed, executed for his crime, and they would go back into the cell and write on the notice, justified. Justified. The penalty's complete. Obviously in the wonder of the Gospel, the death wasn't ours. The cell was set open because Jesus justified us by His death and justified us by His resurrection. The law of God stood written. Every sin that we have committed in a sense on that document by our cell's door, bound in sin. But a quickening ray was diffused, as we sung of earlier this morning. A quickening ray. A life-giving ray of light. And we woke out of our deadness. We woke out of our stupor. We realized that we were in bondage to sin. And we were delivered, not by our death, but by Christ in our place. On that cross, Jesus suffered the penalty of our sin. There He died for your sins and mine, such that all who believe in His completed work are forgiven. We stand righteous before God. Our identity, He continues, He, and here turning particularly to Christ, verse 15, disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, it, in Him or in it, the cross There's debate as to the right reading there, but either one, they both work. Both are obviously true, but the picture here is Christ as a triumphant military general stripping the demonic powers of their dignity, putting them to shame, displaying them as conquered captives, and what is now set against us? Not them. They're done. Jesus defeated these powers in his death. We're now free from them. We're free from their accusation. We're free from their power in a a new and distinct way. They raged against us, they threatened to undo us. But Christ won a cosmic victory by dying and rising from the dead for our justification. And think on it we are rooted in Him. We have life in the name of this Savior who defeated these powers. What do we have to fear? By his death and resurrection, he put the powers of darkness on humiliating display, leading them in triumphal procession, conquering King, so that those who unite to Christ triumph by faith can say, no power of hell and no scheme of man can wrest us from his hand. In him, Or in the cross. If it is the cross, then as one has said it so well, what appeared to be an instrument of death for Jesus became his chariot of victory. Who are you? Who do you believe yourself to be? How would you articulate your fundamental sense of identity? Now, there's a world that has preached at you all week. It's talked to you about just how you're supposed to perceive yourself, how you're supposed to think about things, how you're supposed to live life. It's been preaching and preaching and preaching all day long, every day. We come together by the grace of God as the people of God to this place to say, here's who you are. Here's who I am in Christ. Well, let's say it this way. There's two categories of people among us. There are those that are here whose identity is rooted in yourself. In fact, you would say, if, at least before you came in, if we had done a survey on the way in, you'd say, what are you talking about? My identity? I'm me. I'm myself. What do you mean? What, what other identity is there for people that are you know, walking around with their freedom? I mean, there's other people, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm myself. I'm me. You would have said that. I'm self-satisfied, at least on some level. There's some things I'd like to improve, but I'm I'm at peace with myself, and I'm self-autonomous. Well, the truth is you're not. You're not self-autonomous. Apart from Christ, you are chained in the tiny, dark confines of your own sin. You're in a dungeon of repeating waves of, of emptiness and condemnation all have sinned the scriptures say and fall short of the glory of God the wages of sin is death so it's important that you get this you say my identity is not Christ For me to live as Christ, I'd never say that. My identity is myself. If that's where you are today, you are a condemned soul. You are a sinking ship. You are a crashing aircraft, and there is no rescue in yourself. You're going down in the middle of the ocean. You're going down at 4,000 feet. You can't work this out. You have to look outside of you. And that's the second category of people here who are saying with me, at least inwardly, amen and amen. Look up. Look to Christ. Find your identity there in this cosmic ruler of heaven and earth. This one who is the head of His church, who has defeated death and has given life and forgiveness to sinners. Look to Him. You're not... Under sin's bondage, let me say to you, you are not in bondage to sin anymore. You have been justified, not through your death, through Christ's death in your place. And you are rooted in Him where nothing can conquer your soul for all eternity. That's your identity. Your identity is Christ. We're learning that, and we're learning to work that out in our daily lives. In light of these truths, there remain for us a seri- there remains a serious warning then. Because of who Jesus is, every human philosophy which lures us away from the all-sufficient person and work of Christ, as revealed in Scripture, is an attack. It's destructive. It leaks into our faith and it draws us away from our fullness in Christ. We must resist it and we must continue to come back and see myself as I am in Christ. So the Christian life is not about discovering new truths. It's not about finding the secret to the Christian life that a few people have been able to live and if we get their book or we get their seminar, we'll figure out how to do it. It, it, it It isn't there. Not that these things can not be helpful, but they'll only be helpful as they point us back to our new identity as a new person in Christ. It really is, truly... About, the, about seeing the Jesus who is right in front of you, who's right with you, in whom you have been incorporated by faith. That's really what it's about. I mean, really. That's not a fast course, but it's slow, continuing learning of who Christ is and what He has done, what His death means, what His resurrection means, and how it filters down into everything that I think and do. It's my whole new identity. That really is where it's at. And that's what Paul is so anxious about here is that the Colossians recognize that and they don't get knocked off course from it as people are swooping in to say, Jesus plus. Jesus plus our key to the Christian life. Throw it away, says Jesus. This is an addition it's a massive subtraction. Reject it. So, Christian, pray for yourself. Pray for one another that by the aid of the Spirit of God, we would see Christ the cosmic Creator and Sustainer, the sacrificial Lamb who bore our sin on the cross, our Redeemer, our risen Lord, who unites us to His conquest as the ruling and coming King of kings and Lord of lords. If we could only see that Christ, if we could only embrace this high Christology, we'd never be the same again. Nor would this church. It would revive us. It would change us. It would freshen us and send us out for the glory of Christ. Pray that that vision comes. Pray. And Lord, we do. We recognize as we slam up against the wall of our sin and reality, the weakness of our faith, the weakness of our walk, we recognize over and over again that we do not see Christ for all that He is. We fiddle around with finding our identity in our own actions, our own reputation, some trick, some key, some new way of seeing things. We confess our sin. We pray in behalf of those who do not know Christ here and ask that you'd enlighten them and draw them to the Savior. To see in Him the repository of all wisdom and understanding. To see in Him the repository of everything that is beautiful and good. I pray for those of us who know Christ as Savior that you would deepen our vision. Allow these feeble words, but these inspired, written words to transform us. Show us Christ. Christ in a way that transforms may we bring this knowledge of who we are in him to action seeing ourselves for who we were created to be in jesus we ask this in his name through his power through his saving blood amen